The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Saul said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, "Has Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is is the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers in the back corner. If it is your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Thanks, Steve. Well, good morning. My name is Ben. I'm on staff here. We're delighted you're here with us this Sunday morning. Uh, you guys need a kind of a Gatorade aid station after that long scripture reading. And Steve, thank you for that. As you notice, this is not Romans 8. We finished Romans 8 last week. This is not Romans 8. Um, this is a new sermon series we're starting. But before we jump into that, uh, one big, big plug. It's a big old plug. So uh, tonight, installation service of Steve Perkins and Mark Gregory uh, as assistant pastors here at Restoration Southside. Whoop, whoop is right. Um, and so what time is it? Five o'clock. It's five o'clock. Five o'clock is when it is at five o'clock tonight. So what time is it? We'll be in here for uh, a quick service uh, and really get to celebrate. It's a service of celebration and excitement for Mark and for Steve. And so, uh, and then afterwards, we will do what we do well, which is celebrate also. There'll be food and drinks and bounce houses over here. We'll open up the garage doors of the Peyton. It'll be a really good time. So just um, come. We want to be a church that celebrates what the God is doing. And we certainly, this is a celebratable moment. So five o'clock. Uh, first and second Samuel. This is the, this is where we find ourselves. It's an Old Testament. Um, it's actually the same book and it was chopped in half because of a scroll. First Samuel, second Samuel. But uh, we're going to be looking at uh, David mostly. We'll begin with Saul today, but throughout this summer, we'll look at David, the heart of David. And we're calling this sermon series Dispositions of the Heart. Dispositions of the Heart. So what is David marked by? What's his heart marked by that's commendable, that we should really lean into, that, that uh, it's humble in, in nature and spirit? And what are things that also that's in David, that's in us, that we really need to be aware of, the pitfalls, and even the, the hard things to wrestle with. Dispositions of the heart, First and Second Samuel, Old Testament historical books. And we'll look at Saul this morning. Um, C.S. Lewis has a book called Mere Christianity. It's, it really is peerless. It's um, a magnificent piece. It's really short um, in chapters. It's kind of like the SAT, really short sections that are really rich. Some of y'all just had a little flare-up uh, hearing SAT. But here's, he has a chapter called The Great Sin. The Great Sin. Here's what he says on The Great Sin. The opening words of that chapter. He says, There is one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and which is hardly, which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they're cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which makes uh, uh, which we are more unconscious in our own selves, ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And Mark alluded to it 
What is this vice, this great sin? Pride. Why do you buy things? I'm not saying buying things is wrong, but a driving force, pride. Why do you post something on Instagram? Why did, why did Russia invade Ukraine? Pride is the walking dead uh, of all vices. That is to say, Walking Dead, it's a zombie show that has, I think, 87 seasons. And it's the same, the same episode every time. But spoiler, at the beginning of the show, you don't have to drink some special water and then become a zombie. You don't have to uh, live near some nuclear reactor to become a zombie. You, you just have to be human. And when you die, you become a zombie because laden in every single human heart is the ability, is your zombiness. And, and so with pride. Laden in every single human heart, universal, it is the walking dead of vices. Pride is. And this morning we'll see in the story of Saul, a case study of pride. He's not going to be losing God's favor and pleasure because he did wrong things as much as he is prideful. Why is David chosen king of Israel? And we'll look at next week, this, over all of his brothers. Because God looks at the heart. And this morning, God will look at our hearts. And if we really do lean into the fact or the potential of the fact that we are prideful, there's much work to do. And so we'll look at three things this morning. We'll look at the, the goal of pride, second, the shame of pride, and third, the remedy of pride. The goal, the shame, the remedy. Um, but as we examine this passage, a mirror is a hard thing to hold. And so let's go to the Holy Spirit, ask him to soften our hearts as we speak about pride and look at pride this morning. Lord, this very day, would you do what you do so well? Would you shine a light on the things that are dark? Would you make soft the things that are hard? Would you bring sight to blindness and hearing to ears that are clogged up? And it's not for the sake of us knowing ourselves better. It's all for the sake of seeing who we really are, so that we immediately run to Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, that I've looked at myself in the mirror all the, so much more than looking at all that Jesus has done for me. For this thought, and for a room full of uh, people who are probably like me, would you meet us, just as you promised? Pray in your name. Amen. Pride. Saul, 1 Samuel 15, pride. The goal of pride. Now, context is really important because we're going from a New Testament letter that Paul wrote, and it's the greatest chapter of all time, to an Old Testament book that talks about history. So there's a big shift. So what is context of 1 Samuel 15 and really 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel in general? And it's that... um, God set his affection and his love, and he said, I'm going to work through the world's blessing 
through a small little nation, Israel. I chose them not because they were strong, but because they were small in number and they were weak. And God said, I can do a lot with that. And so he's working his plan out for, I mean, cosmic renewal through this tiny little nation. And finally, this tiny little nation, um, who, if you read about them, you, you could think to yourself, why did God choose them? They're not very choosable. They say, we want a king. Yeah, God, thanks for all you've been to us, but we want a king like all the other nations. We want to be like them. God says, okay, I'll give you a king. And so Samuel, hence the name of the book, Samuel goes, and he's a prophet, and he goes and he anoints uh, in 1 Samuel 8 and 9, chooses and anoints uh, Saul as king. And Saul is tall, he is handsome, he is strong. He's someone who you want to be king. If you're saying, I want a king like all the nations, this is the guy. So they choose Saul to be king. And then God says, hey, Saul, as your king leading the people of Israel, here's what you are to do. You need to go and wipe out the Amalekites. A nation that's an enemy of Israel, go and wipe them out. Every single trace of them, make them no more. Now, um, is that cruel of God? Uh, History is important here. Every point in scripture, Every single point in scripture for the Amalekites, they are hell-bent on one thing, destroying Israel, making them dust. We see it all over scripture. We see it in Moses, in Exodus, when he holds his hands up and uh, they're trying to to defeat the Amalekites. Uh, We see it uh, in Esther, that that, uh, a descendant of an Amalekite tried to destroy Esther and all the Jewish people. It's everywhere in scripture. And so actually God is saying, hey, go destroy the Amalekites, but go tell the Kenites who were kind to you when you left Egypt, hey, leave the Amalekites because we're going to come in and kill the Amalekites. So even the kindness of God and the justice of God are seen as we're warming up to this showcase and this case study of pride. And so what Paul, uh, what Saul does is he says, he's told to go with the commandment of God and kill the Amalekites. And he goes and he does the job. He does it. But verse 9 says something else. As he's doing the job, executing the orders, the mission that God gave him, it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best sheep and of the oxen, of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So, why is that prideful? It actually seems pretty merciful that, that he would look at people and say, I'm not going to kill you. I've been told to kill you. I will show mercy to you. Why is that prideful and not merciful? The best of the kingdoms in that day were the cattle, the fat calves. That was the, the, the pinnacle of the economy. You eat them, you sell them, all these different things. And, and also the pinnacle of of the leadership was King Agag. And so what Saul is doing here that's prideful is that he's taking the best of the best and killing all the soldiers, but keeping the king to be his trophy case. To say, look what I've done. I've defeated them and I have usurped all of the best of the best for myself. And God said, you shouldn't do that because actually that's what all other nations do. All other nations go and plunder and and have this 
prestige and power through plundering and they keep the good stuff for themselves. And God says, no, no, no. The mission you're on is to make sure my people are safe and lead them well, Saul King. Tim Keller says, God wants him to go on a mission of justice, but instead he goes on a mission of his ego's imperialism. He's supposed to go and execute justice, but he goes on a mission of his ego's imperialism. And it's marked, everything's marked with this. There's a story that Charles Spurgeon, who's a preacher in the 19th century, tells. And it's a story, uh, it's hypothetical, but he says there's this king. And this king is, uh, has this large kingdom and owns much. And there's this farmer in the kingdom. And this farmer grows carrots. And this farmer grew carrots and he grew this prestigious, amazing, large, perfect, flawless carrot. And the farmer takes that flawless carrot and he takes it to the king. And he goes to the king and says, Oh, king, I've grown this carrot for you. It's the best I've ever grown. And I want you to have it because you are my king. Here this gift is for you. And, it's, and Charles Spurgeon said, the king discerned the man's heart and said, thank you. Farmer, thank you for giving me this carrot. And you know what? Actually, I own the track of land next to yours, and it is large. And because of this gift that's unsolicited, that honors me, I'm going to give you that track of land. It's yours. Now there's a nobleman in the court, and, and he hears what's going on. He's kind of eavesdropping. And he hears, hey, one carrot, a lot of land. That's a pretty good uh, exchange right there. And so he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm an, I've got some money. I'm going to go and I'm going to uh, find the best horse. I'm going to buy the best horse and I'm going to do exactly what the, I mean, a carrot to a horse, what would that give for me? And so he goes and says, king, oh, king, 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 my king. He says, I have brought you this horse. It's perfect. And I wanted to give you esteem and honor with it. And Spurgeon says, the king discerned the man's heart. And the king said, thank you. That'll be all. And Spurgeon makes the point with that story that the farmer gave the carrot to the king. And the nobleman gave the horse to himself. So we see in Saul. That Saul goes and he plunders, and instead of doing the mission that he's been told to do of justice and protecting his people, he saves King Agai's life, spares his life, and he gets the best of the best of the livestock, and he keeps it for himself. All because of his pride, his actions of pride, all are marked with this, gather up things that benefit me. Because the actions of pride serves the goal of pride. And the goal of pride is this. You and I are the center of the universe. Everything finds its relationship via us. We are the sun and all the planets are all relative to us. We're the central character. We're the most important thing. And every action that he has is marked by that. He's the most important one. Why would I not listen to God? Because I don't listen to me. Why would I not do what God does? Because I want to do what I want to do. So Saul is marked by this, this, this pride. And one quick side note is that 
because the goal of pride is that you are the central character in your story, pride can look many ways, but, but two in particular, and we see it in Saul, superiority. I am superior. I am the man. I am the person. I'm the one who, has, who deserves all the acclaim. I'm the center of attention and of worship. We see it in him. But there's another flavor on the other spectrum, side of the spectrum, inferiority. That there is a possibility, not always, of your pride making itself known through inferiority. Because if the goal of pride and if pride has the nature of making you the center of everything, you can be the center of everything and and be uh, downcast. And think to yourself, um, oh, goodness. Everything in the story of the world revolves around me and woe is me. Right? We see this in, in Jonah. At the very end of Jonah, he says he's downcast and he's angry uh, and he's inferior. All because the whole world revolves around him and the desires of his heart are deferred. So, quick side note. The goal of pride is that you're the center of the story. And everything revolves around you. And we see the superiority in Saul because all pride longs to do is worship you somehow. And it says in verse 12, an example of this, it says it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and then turned and passed and went to Gilgal. Before he worshiped God in Gilgal, he worshiped himself in Carmel. His priorities of worship show the way he's pride. The goal of pride is self-worship. So why in the world would we choose this? Why would we choose pride? Why do we believe pride? It's because pride tells us something. You believe the promises of pride because it tells you something. It tells you that when you are naked, standing before anyone, you've got something to hold on to. You've got something to grasp. There's something important about you. That's what pride tells you because you're the center of the universe and I'm the center of the universe. And the danger of that is that pride grows in the soil of your own head. Meaning you're the one that feeds it. You're the one that sows the seed. You're the one that reaps the soil, the, the harvest. You are the the judge or the jury. You're the prosecutor. You are everyone. And you should never, someone said, you should never go to your own head and your own thinking. It's like a bad neighborhood. Don't go there alone. And yet it's where pride grows best. Saul needs praise and worship and he gives it to himself. He sets up a monument for himself. And in the words of Michael Scott, do I need to be liked? Absolutely not. I like to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked, but it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. Saul, in his pride, has to be praised. That's why he spares Agag. That's why he takes all the flattened livestock. That's why he sets up a monument for himself. And friend, that's why we do so much in our lives. A compulsive need to be told we're someone. So that's the goal of pride. What's the shame of pride? The shame of pride, this other idea. And Samuel's given this dream. And God tells Samuel, here's what happened. I, Saul has not obeyed my command 
and he has lost my favor, and I've regretted he's become king. And Samuel says, why, God? Why? And he stays up all night talking about this. And then during the night, uh, God visits Samuel and tells him why. And then Samuel rose and went to Saul in the morning. And here's, the, here's how that conversation went. It said, uh, and Samuel rose early in the morning, verse 12 and on. And it was told to Samuel, uh, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be to you, I be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They, the people, have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction." When his prideful actions are exposed, which is what Samuel does to Saul, what happens? Shame. Shame. When he, his pride is exposed, shame then ensues. Because shame here is saying, hey, this is what you've done. Hey, I hear you, you just said you did what you were supposed to do. Well, well what's, that, what's, the, what's that noise that I hear of the oxen and of the sheep? Why do I hear sheep when there's supposed to be no sheep from the Amalekites? And then Saul says, well, uh, the people brought him back. I didn't bring him back. And, and actually the people brought him back so they can give him to God, not to me. What he does is he pivots and recoils because he knows I haven't done, just done a bad thing, right? Wrong. I've actually done it for the reason and in the name of self-interest. It's not just guilt in what I've done. It's shame about who I am and everything that I've done because I feel shame, because I feel prideful. I feel self-important. And what he does is he recoils. And this is not isolated to Saul in 1 Samuel 15. So if we go back to the third chapter of the Bible, we see Notes that are almost identical. And Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden by God to, to rule over it, to, to cultivate it is the real word, and to make it beautiful, bring life to it, to rule and reign over it. And they're sold to do that. And don't go eat of the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does Satan do? The serpent comes and says, did God really say? Did God really say you shouldn't do it? He said that you shouldn't eat from that tree because actually you'll be like God and he doesn't want you to be God. And you know what? Adam and Eve, you would be a better God than that God is. You should do it. Do it. They go, they, they eat the fruit. Surprise. They go and they, and they eat this fruit. And what's the result? They used to be naked and unashamed. And what's the first thing that they're noted by? They know they're naked and they're filled with shame. When they're exposed, John Donne, who's a, who's a, uh, a 16th and 17th century poet and, and theologian, he says, Satan used pride to pry them away from God's goodness. And when they know that pride is the thing that made them take a bite of the apple, they're filled with shame and they themselves recoil. 
What's the result? Shame. Where is the serpent when God comes to Adam and Eve? Nowhere to be found. Which shows us that that pride is such a fickle thing that when light is shown on it, when it's called out, when you're caught in your own pride, pride makes you sit there and explain yourself as it has already gone way out the exit door. Right? When pride makes you take the cookie cookie jar and you're caught and your hand's in the cookie jar, it's nowhere to be found. And it leaves you to stand in the court to explain why you've done what you've done. Pride leaves you alone after it's been caught and to explain everything you believed pride would give you. No wonder shame then ensues. And just like Adam, what did he say? He said, the woman, this woman you gave me, she made me eat it. What does Saul do? Verse 15, it says, Saul said, they, the the people, even though I brought them back and I spared them as the king, they have brought them back from the Amalekites for they, the people spared the best, the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, not my God, your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. When is called out in his pride, he doesn't repent. He recoils. His back is against the wall and he starts shooting to find a way out. And just as pride has a way of putting you at the center of everything, so shame has the same thing. It puts you at the center of everything. And you have to face the music of pride. Because really, if we're honest, pride and shame aren't that all different. So let's just entertain the thought that Adam and Saul, Genesis 3, Adam, 1 Samuel 15, Saul, are cut from the same cloth. Let's just entertain the thought that you and I are cut from the same cloth as them. When you're caught in your pride, what does your reaction to shame sound like? When you got to face the music, when the spotlight is dead on you and you put your hands up, what does the voice of shame sound like as you react to being caught? Because shame can sound like deflecting pointing a finger. It's the woman that gave me this, that made me do this. And Saul says, the, soul, the people brought them back. I didn't bring it back. They did this, not me. Shame can also sound defensive. Saul says, it, it's, even though they did spare them, hey, we brought it back for God. I'm, I'm justifying what I'm doing. Everything I've done is right. I'm doubling down. Actually, he says this twice. He's called out, says, hey, I'm, we're good. I'm, I did what was right. Samuel leans into it again. And Saul doubles down again and says, I did what was right. And the second thing, when, second time when he says, I've done what was right, four times, I didn't pick it up until it was read for us by Steve. Four times he says, I have done this. I have done this. I have done this. I have done this. You, there's a laundry list of everything you've done right in a defensive nature. Shame can so easily sound defensive when you're caught in your pride. And maybe you're like me, though. And actually, shame can sound degrading. Yes, it's deflecting and points a finger. Yes, it's defensive and and says, tries to justify. But maybe you're degrading because you hear a voice in your head and you can think, why did you ever think you were so important? 
who gave you the right to say you're the most important person? Because now the spotlight's on you and everybody knows you're a farce. Everyone knows you're not important. Where did you get that idea? The goal of pride is to exist more and more and more, to grow and grow and grow. And when it's called out, it's nowhere to be found and you are faced with the task to say, I actually thought pride would would cut that check for me, that it told me it would. And here I am sitting in shame because I believed what pride would have given me. If we are filled with shame, where is the remedy in it? This last thought. What's, what's the solution? What's the remedy of pride? Now, I have a, my wife and I, we have a dog. And she's uh, a red-bone coonhound. And she is, uh, she's a lively sucker. She, and, and have a dog is a, a super loose word. We, there's a dog that lives at our house. And mostly it's in the backyard the whole time. But this dog that we have, June, is, she really is so sweet. But she is, I mean, just the, the worst listener of all time. Isn't she Mary Lou? It's a mother-in-law. She's a terrible listener. And, and it, she doesn't listen to me um, because she can't hear me. She hears pretty good. She doesn't listen to me on a walk and she pulls the pulls the, the leash hard because she's caught some scent that blocks out the voice of the master. And the remedy of pride is that we've got to acknowledge that something in our lives that we've caught some scent that we're putting our nose to the ground trying to follow it all the while the master's inviting us to a different spot. That's actually probably good for us. The first step to saying you're prideful is to say you're prideful. To acknowledge you're proud, you have to acknowledge you're proud. And Saul, uh, Samuel sums it all up by saying at the very end of this long uh, section, he basically says, God doesn't want your sacrifice. He doesn't want the oxen and the sheep. He's saying, he doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your obedience. And it's not because God needs your obedience. It's actually because God's after you. How do we obey? How do we get out of our own way if we're prideful? C.S. Lewis says this, the very end of that, the great sin chapter in mere Christianity. He says, he, God, God is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible. He wants this to be true. God wants this to be true in your life right now, this moment, in 2023. Living in a southern city where it's easy to be a Christian. Actually, Christianity gets you a lot. This is what God wants for you. Trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have all got ourselves up and are strutting around like the little idiots we are. He called you an idiot. I didn't. And he says, I wish I had gotten a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I probably could tell you more about the relief 
and the comfort of taking the fancy dress off, getting rid of the false self with all of its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all of its posing and posturing. He says of humility, uh, to, to get even near it, humility, even for a moment is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell them the first step. And the first step is to realize one is proud and a biggish step too. He's saying you long just to not be proud anymore. Be humble. How do you be humble? Say you're proud. Because when you do that, you free yourself from every pretense you believed, every part of pride that says there's this fancy dress you put on and then you'll be something. All because of this one truth and the one truth that drives the fact that God wants your obedience more than your sacrifice is because God wants you more than the things that you want instead of him. God wanted Saul more than Saul wanted King Agag and and wanted the, the oxen and the sheep. And friends, God wants you more than the things that you want more than him. And it's a very good thing that's true. And there's no better place to see you a place where God wants you, a showcase, a case study where you know that to be true than in the humility and the humiliation of Jesus. Because when you look at the humility and the humiliation of Jesus, you can say to yourself, maybe this God really does want me. And in Philippians 2, there's this great passage where Paul writes and says, hey, a church in Philippi, you should, a letter, you should be like this. Um, have this mindset among you. If you want a beautiful community, be this, be like this. It says in, in verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. We want to know freedom enough to know that we can be humble. And Jesus was never more free when he was all, when he was the most captive on a cross and in a tomb. And it was all for you. Jesus didn't stand on the cross and say, man, this is really going to pan out for me. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was forsook, uh, forsaken all because of you. So you would never be. He's not thinking what's in it for me. He's thinking what's in it for you. And where the first king of Israel, Saul, failed, Jesus, the perfect king of his people, you and I, is perfect. Because where Saul disobeyed the command to go and and take out the enemy, Jesus is obedient to the command where he himself will be taken out for you. That where Jesus, where Saul took all the spoils for himself, Jesus gave everything up that he had for you. 
where Saul stepped and recoiled and stepped away from his shame, Jesus steps right into your shame and takes on the cross and the, 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 the crown of shame. And where Saul lost his anointing by pridefully taking things up for himself, you can never see the anointing of Jesus so pointed when he actually uh, gives everything away he has and he's got a crown on his head. Saul went into the battle with the Amalekites with a hope in his heart that said, maybe I'll be something after I win. And Jesus went into the cross saying, you will be something after I lose. And what that does to you is it frees you up from saying whatever promise pride gives me, it doesn't hold a candle to what Jesus has already purchased for me. And because of that, Tim Keller says, you don't think of yourself you don't think less of yourself. You think of yourself less because Jesus thinks the world of you. The remedy for pride is knowing he has made his mind up about you and where the first king has failed to lead his people. The perfect king of Jesus has said, I've laid my life down and everything I have for you. There is no better leader than a sacrificial one. And friends, there is no thing Jesus has not sacrificed for you. He's a perfect king who invites us into humility. Let's pray. Lord, we have built up these, just like Saul, the monuments of pride where we worship ourselves. And we think we've built it with uh, steel and rebar and concrete. And in fact, they're just a house of cards where you just pull one and it all will crumble. Forgive the fact that we have been architects of our own self-importance and conceitedness and worship. Because I have mastered the craft of that. And instead, Lord, remind us the fact that Jesus gave everything he had, all for us to know the freedom of taking off this, this, this self-important dress that C.S. Lewis talked about so that we could have cold water as we wander in the desert. You have risen from the grave, Jesus. And because of that, Humility isn't just an option. It's the invitation. And just like, just like a dog, we, we, we listen to our own senses more than we listen to you. So this very day, would we hear the call of the master and walk in his way? Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Just like a dog, we, we, we listen to our own senses more than we listen to you. So this very day, would we hear the call of the master and walk in his way? Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.